Support for this podcast comes from San Francisco International Airport. At SFO, you can discover award-winning flavors and unique shops all before takeoff. Learn more about what's at SFO at flysfo.com. Hey, it's Avery Truffleman, host of Articles of Interest. And I've got to say, I've been a fan of KQED ever since I was a little kid, and I would come out to San Francisco to visit my grandma. It was just What we'd always turn on every time we got in the car, every time we were making dinner and turning on the radio, was always KQED. And then over the years, I've become a massive fan of KQED podcasts because this is local reporting at its best. These are answers to questions you've always wanted to know, interviews with exciting, unusual voices, necessary journalism, all told with love and care and artistry. And did you know that a majority of KQED's funding actually comes from members? It's just people like you and me supporting the programs they love while also getting access to cool events, behind-the-scenes footage, and so much more. If you want to sign up and be a part of this amazing community, visit donate.kqed.org slash podcasts to become a member today. That's podcasts with an S. Thank you for listening, and thank you for your support. From KQED. From KQED in San Francisco, I'm Rachel Myro in for Mina Kim. Coming up on Forum, she's been hailed as one of America's most effective champions for progress by Barack Obama and a titan by Nancy Pelosi. Democratic progressives have long criticized her as too centrist, especially in recent years. But over the course of three decades, Senator Dianne Feinstein widened the way forward for women in Washington, D.C., took on the gun lobby and the CIA and voted her conscience, even when both parties were leaning on her not to, for different reasons. We'll talk to some experts about her career and legacy, and we want to hear from you what you remember about Dianne Feinstein. That's next, after this news. This is Forum. I'm Rachel Myro in for Mina Kim. Months before Senator Dianne Feinstein's office announced her retirement, once this term is done, the jockeying began to replace her today. Congresswoman Barbara Lee threw her hat in the ring. But as this race begins in earnest, let's look back first on Dianne Feinstein's political career. I promise you, dear listeners, you're going to hear a lot this hour you have not heard in other interviews. We've got a long memory here at KQED, and we've also got Scott Schaefer in studio, senior editor for KQED's California Politics and Government Desk and co-host of Political Breakdown. Scott, thank you so much for being here. Good to be with you, Rachel. I also want to say that we have a fabulous, largely local audience that we want to invite into this conversation. What do you remember most about her career? What What's impressed you, bugged you? Who do you want to see replace her? We want your thoughts and comments. Give us a call now at 866-733-6786 and get in the queue for comment. I'm sure it'll be a long line. Once again, that's 866-733-6786. So with that, Scott, 
Feinstein's disappointing performance in recent years, I think we can call it that, makes it easy to forget all that she's accomplished over decades. Take us back to the late 1960s when her political career began. I I think for most people alive today, the two of us included, it's kind of hard to imagine what she was up against in the beginning, how hard it was to be taken seriously. Absolutely. I mean, she ran for the Board of Supervisors in 1969 and was the top vote-getter among 15 or so candidates. That was a big surprise. She kind of came out of nowhere. Uh, First woman to be president of the Board of Supervisors, ran for mayor uh, in 1971, and again in 1975, disappointed uh, that she didn't win. Um, And so she considered getting out of politics. In fact, the very uh, year that uh, she became mayor after the assassinations, she thought, you know, maybe I'm just not going to run for the board again. I've run for mayor twice, fell short. So maybe, you know, I'll run for something else or do something else altogether. And then, of course, you know, that month of November 1978, tragedy on so many levels, and also a tragedy year for her personally. Her husband, longtime husband, uh, Bert Feinstein, neurosurgeon in San Francisco, died. So, you know, on top of that, There was the Jonestown massacres where 900 people, many of them from San Francisco, died at this compound in Guyana. And then just a couple weeks later, with the city reeling from that horrible thing, uh, the assassinations of George Moscone, the mayor, Harvey Milk, the first openly gay supervisor in the city. And it was left to Mayor Feinstein to make the announcement and then sort of pull the city together. You know, there are a lot of people who think Feinstein might have faded into the woodwork of of local Bay Area politics had it not been for those awful murders. Uh, Let's listen here to her reflecting back. This is in 2008, so 30 years on from 1978, reflecting back on, on what that moment meant to the city. It was a devastating moment. Uh, For San Francisco, it was a day of infamy. I think we were all very proud of the fact that San Francisco was the city to elect the first openly gay uh, supervisor. So there was an element of pride in that. And what it did to the city was divide it right down the middle, uh, was create a tension, an apprehension, uh, some of it sorrow, some of it hate, very visceral emotions that you don't usually see all came to the surface and bubbled up at that time. Scott, what what do you hear there? Well, I hear how much San Francisco and, in fact, California has changed because the the time that she's referring to, 1978, the city, you know, was still – you know, somewhat conservative, certainly by today's standards. And there was a whole west side of town, uh, you know, Twin Peaks to the ocean, uh, that was much more Republican uh, and much more conservative than it is now. And so Dan White, the supervisor who represented a part of that uh, district, uh, that part of the city over there, was more conservative. He was close to the cops and the firefighters. And it was also where John Barbagelata ran for mayor, was in a runoff against Moscone, almost won a very conservative realtor in San Francisco. And so what I hear is, you know, kind of a looking back on a time that was very different uh, and one that she really stepped up into and became a star politically, uh, both locally and nationally. It also reflects the fact that from the beginning, Diane Feinstein was a, a centrist. Her, her mother was a Democrat. Her father was a Goldwater Republican. So this was this wasn't just you know reading the political tea leaves on her part and being strategic. This is you know from deep down inside a centrist. Yeah, I mean, I think 
she certainly governed as mayor. I mean, she replaced George Moscone, who had been liberal, uh, had a coalition that included the gay community and uh, other communities of color. And there was not only sorrow and sadness, but anger that he and Harvey Milk were shot and killed. And she steps up into that role as mayor and was much more a centrist. You know, she was very friendly with the police and the firefighters. She was very much aligned with downtown interests. She supported a huge development in downtown San Francisco. There was a phrase, don't allow the Manhattanization of San Francisco, something that was very much identified with her as mayor. Uh, and so, and she continued that throughout her career, you know, being for the death penalty and things like that. However, there, you know, she was also very pro-choice when, you know, early on, she had part of her coalition when she ran for mayor, uh, for the Board of Soups in 1969, included the gay community. I mean, she really reached out and, you know, that was not, there was some risk to doing that way back then in the, in the, in the late 60s, even here in San Francisco. So she, you know, I think she's hard to pigeonhole. But I would say certainly uh, the, the Democratic Party in California especially has moved to her left over the years. I'm wondering if you can share a joke uh, with us. I don't want to lose the punchline here, <laughs> but I'll just say it has to do with the, just the bizarreness of what some might have described about her term in, in the mayor's office as being kind of maternal. Yeah. So I was you know, reading back, you know, when she made her announcement, she was tiring, re- reading back over a lot of articles. And she was famous for having, when she was mayor, Monday morning meetings with all the department heads. They would all come in. They would all sit there. And one by one, she would go down the line and ask them what was on their agenda. What were they doing? You know, ask if they had, you know, fixed something that she had told them to fix from the last meeting or not. And if not, she gave them a new deadline and you know, ultimatum. And there was a lot of fear in the room because she was tough. She was tough. She really was very detail-oriented. And, you know, I think she liked to think, and some of her, you know, friendly aides thought of her as mothering the city. But one of her, uh, one of the people over at the Board of Soups in City Hall said it was more like smothering the city (laughs) because she was so hands-on and so had so much attention to detail uh, that some felt it was just a little almost oppressive. Yeah, yeah. I, you know, uh, she ran for governor in 1990, lost to Pete Wilson. A- another reminder, I think, to those of us looking back from so many years in the future, that back then, even in 1990, California was still a purple state. Very much so. I mean, uh, you know, Jerry Brown had been governor for eight years, and then you know, Pete uh, George Zygmajan rather followed him, and then Pete Wilson followed him in 1990 for another eight years. So we had 16 years of Republican governors. You know, uh, S.I. Hayakawa, a Republican from SF State, he was the president of SF State, was a senator, one of the two U.S. senators. Uh, there were many more Republicans up in Sacramento. So, you know, it was definitely a very different state, a more purple state. And yet she ran a very competitive race against Pete Wilson. Uh, She had a very good image and reputation coming off the mayor's job in San Francisco. Uh, But she she just fell short. Uh, But obviously there was more to come. Uh, Well, yeah, she set her eye on the U.S. Senate, which we're going to talk about next. Right. Uh, Running the same year that Barbara Boxer ran for U.S. Senate. And a lot of people at the time thought California wasn't ready for two women, two Jewish women, two Jewish women from the Bay Area. Yeah, I don't think anybody saw that coming, to be honest. I mean, the uh, on the Democratic side for the, the seat that Alan Cranston, who retired, had held, it was Boxer and a number of other, you know, very well-known 
Democrats who are well-funded, uh, but she ended up squeezing through uh, the primary and winning, you know, the nomination. We had nominations back then. Uh, and then Dianne Feinstein ran for the, the so-called short seat. Uh, John Seymour had been appointed to fill out the rest of Pete Wilson's term when he became governor. And, you know, she beat Gray Davis and went on to really easily beat John Seymour and then ran again in two years when, uh, you know, for a full six years. Uh, so, yeah, it was, you know, it was the idea of two Jewish women from the Bay Area uh, winning those two Senate races was incredible. And not just because they were, I mean, yes, we were the first state to send two women to the U.S. Senate. Other states have since done that. Uh, but to Jewish women and to, from Northern California also, because the, the center of gravity in California politics for a long time was Southern California, Pete Wilson, George Duke Majin, um, and, you know, others who really were the anchor of politics in the state. And it really, I think, ushered in a shift toward the North. And then uh, these women get to the U.S. Senate and uh, immediately begin to upend expectations that they're going to focus on women's issues. Yeah. Well, certainly neither one of them wanted to do that. Uh, and they were very different people, we should say. Barbara Boxer was, I would say, more liberal, more outspoken. Uh, she was much more, uh, you know, she was famous at one point for holding up a $500 hammer when she was uh, looking over the Pentagon's budget. That kind of thing, Dianne Feinstein would never do. She was a workhorse, not a show horse. She really rolled up her sleeves. She worked across the aisle. She really relished the idea of uh, working on big, tough issues. You know, one of the first things she did is get an assault weapons ban passed against all odds. She got 60 votes. Joe Biden, she and Joe Biden worked together on that. But it was really Dianne Feinstein was the moving force behind that. And she also uh, sponsored the Desert Protection Act, which passed in 1994 as well, uh, something that, you know, we can thank her uh, and the passage of that for protecting the Mojave Desert and Joshua Tree National Park and things like that. So, you know, very early in her term as uh, as U.S. senator, she made a big difference and not, as you say, not, quote unquote, just on women's issues. Well, we're looking back on Dianne Feinstein's five-decade career in politics following her announcement that she'll retire as our senator at the end of her term in 2024. And we want to hear not just from Scott Schaefer, senior editor for KQED's California Politics and Government Desk and co-host of Political Breakdown, but you, dear listeners, email your comments and questions to forum at kqed.org. Find us on Twitter or Facebook or Instagram. We're at KQED Forum. Or just give us a call. Pick up the phone, 866-733-6786, and join the conversation. That's 866-733-6786. You're listening to Forum. I'm Rachel Myro. Stay with us. Support for Forum comes from San Francisco Opera. Set 10 years after a school shooting, the critically acclaimed opera Innocence takes us into a complex emotional journey where our understanding of innocence and guilt is constantly upended. Kaya Sariajo's ethereal score collapses the past into the present as a community of survivors grapple with how to move forward. Don't miss the highly anticipated American premiere of Innocence, June 1st through 21st. Learn more at sfopera.com. We've all got those parts of our house where the internet just won't go. 
Well, if you had wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you could worry less about dead spots. Because with wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you get fast speeds, reliable connection in every room, and power for all of your devices, even when everyone's online. That's wall-to-wall Wi-Fi only with Xfinity. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. This is Forum. I'm Rachel Myro in for host Mina Kim, here with Scott Schaefer, senior editor for KQED's California Politics and Government Desk and co-host of Political Breakdown. We are talking about Dianne Feinstein's five-decade career in politics. We've been doing the whistle-stop tour. We talked about her coming up in San Francisco politics. Now we're talking about her time in the Senate. And, you know, uh, as as you mentioned, Scott, you know, uh, Feinstein has disappeared from public view in recent years. But she was doing a lot, making a lot of waves uh, in those first couple of decades in the Senate. But even then, even in the beginning, uh, she was roundly criticized for being too deferential to power. We're getting a lot of phone calls now, which I'm thrilled to hear about. If you want to join the conversation, you should be picking up the phone right now to give us a call at 866-733-6786. Why don't we start with Jan in Mountain View? Hi, Jan. Yeah, I just want... Yeah, hello. I just want to say that uh, overall, I've been very disappointed with Diane Feinstein for like three big reasons. I mean, she was one of the few senators that voted to um, authorize our involvement in the Iraq war. And uh, she's been consistently against uh, single-payer health care, and that's because she's received millions from the pharmaceutical industry, uh, the health care industry. So she's kind of put the needs of corporate uh, interests rather than those of Californians, and of course, recently, you know, she's treated uh, the Senate as basically a retirement, uh, you know, community, and uh, has you know failed to you know represent us and kind of work for us. Um, if you were to ask me what the good thing that she's done, I'll give her credit for consistently trying, you know, to ban assault weapons and things like that. So, you know, good job on that. And then finally, I will say that uh, for her replacement, um, I'm very excited about you know Katie Porter. Uh, I think, yeah, I think that she would be, you know, an excellent uh, senator. And um, I just want to do have one question. I wonder why uh, Nancy Pelosi has consistently said that she is a good senator, you know, given that her, you know, her reduced, um, I would say, mental capacity. I know it's not a nice thing to talk about, but, you know, facts are facts. So just kind of curious what you all think about that. <laughs> well, Jan, you, you've, you've given Scott a lot to talk about here, but but I want to zero in on something uh, Jan just uh, indicated, more than a whiff of, uh, of uh, smoke. The feelings that self-enrichment has been going on. Yeah, I mean, Senator Feinstein is one of the 10 or maybe even seven most wealthy members of Congress and, and certainly the U.S. Senate. Uh, her net worth last time I looked was, you know, I, I don't even want to give a number, but it was it was well up there. And most of that is because of her late husband, uh, Dick Blum, who died uh, in the past uh, year and a half or so. Uh, he was an investor. There were a lot of questions about whether he sort of used the information he got from his wife uh, and her role as senator to make investments overseas and elsewhere. You know, the, you, you, met, you said sm- smoke. Yes, there, there has always been... Uh, smoke around that. I don't think there's ever been anything definitive 
about that. But, you know, she certainly is not alone in being a member of Congress who's seen her net personal wealth skyrocket in their time in office. And it's, you know, it's never because of the money they make as a member of Congress. It's other things. And in fact, you know, there is a push now and has been for some time. You know, Jan mentioned Katie Porter, uh, among many others, uh, think that there should be a ban on trading stocks um, at all if you're a member of Congress because of the information that they have. Uh, and so, you know, this is an issue. It does. It has certainly um, been tied to Dianne Feinstein, but I will say also to many other members of Congress, uh, you know, including Nancy Pelosi. And that was coming up as recently as as uh, the COVID pandemic. You know, just a sense that you know maybe there aren't obvious examples of quid pro quo, but you know that just because Feinstein might be in the room, uh, and you know there might be pillow talk when things like you know potential drug treatments are are discussed, that uh, that the family, if you will, of the politician can can benefit greatly. It can. I mean, we saw that uh, play out very uh, specifically in Georgia, a Georgia Senate race uh, that uh, the Democrats picked up uh, a few years ago because uh, the person who had been appointed to the U.S. Senate was seen to have been sort of cashing in uh, on her uh, her husband's, I think, relationship. Uh, so, you know, this is this is certainly. A, I mean, the whole issue of money and politics is one we could spend many many hours talking about. Um, and, you know, it is it is something that Feinstein has been, I don't want to say dogged by, but it is something that, as Jan points out, it's been, you know, identified with her as a question, her personal wealth, where did it come from? I think the last number I saw was about $90 million. I know she has multiple homes. Uh, and again, that doesn't come from being a U.S. senator, uh, but she had a spouse who, you know, did he benefit from her position? You know, I, I really can't say. Yeah, he was an investment banker, so that presumes that we, you know, he started out with a lot of money to begin with. A listener tweets, the assault weapons ban should be seen as her most important legislation. What do you think about that assessment? Well, <clears throat> I think certainly uh, if you had a list of her biggest accomplishments, that would be right near the top. I mean, she became mayor as the result of gun violence, the assassinations at City Hall. Uh, and then, you know, not long after she became a senator, there was the massacre at 101 California a law firm downtown San Francisco. And so she made gun control really a centerpiece of her uh, drive in public life as mayor. She signed uh, a, a, an ordinance against handguns and, in fact, faced a recall by a very pro-gun group called the White Panthers, um, which she survived handily. But nonetheless, this is an issue she has taken on the NRA. She's taken on the gun lobby. Uh, and she got 60 votes, rounded up 60 votes for that assault weapons ban uh, in 1994. Uh, and she has, you know, as to to get those votes, or some of them, she had to agree to a 10-year sunset. And unfortunately, you know, that that ban lapsed and it was not renewed. Uh, George W. Bush was president at the time and there was never a real effort to renew it. But for sure, you'd have to have that in, in the top three of her major accomplishments as a, as a senator. You know, I I would certainly say, you know, as number three, you mentioned, <laughs> there was that remarkable moment in 2014 when she was chair of the Senate Intelligence Committee, and she called out the CIA for using torture to interrogate detainees. In contrast to CIA representations, detainees were subjected to the most aggressive techniques immediately, stripped naked, diapered, physically struck, and put in various painful stress positions for long periods of time. They were deprived of sleep for days, 
in one case up to 180 hours. You know, for for somebody who has been accused over the years, uh, often rightly so, for for placating power, she was not, you know, averse to sticking a thumb in the eye of some pretty powerful people. Yeah, and I think, you know, again, the top three list, that would be right up there. Uh, that She insisted that that report be investigated. It took years to put it together. That What we just heard from her was the release of a 500-page summary. And it was done at you know, against the wishes of the Obama administration. They really did not want her to make that public. But I think it offended her sense of decency and civility, you know, which is something that is really, I think, inherent to who she is. Um, And it was really a moment of holding the CIA accountable uh, in a way that, you know, perhaps they, they haven't been since then. You know, we're, we're getting a lot of comments now of folks who, who don't want to take a moment to pause and just think about the positives of her career. They want to head right to, <laughs> to the assessment part of this program. Uh, so, well, let's get into it, I guess, right? A listener writes, hate to rain on your Feinstein parade, but I don't see that her accomplishment list is at all impressive. She was completely selfish hanging on to power for this long. She's a poster child of what's wrong with Congress. A congressperson should spend a few years learning from the mentors, a few years exercising their leadership, a few years mentoring the next generation, then pass on the seat. It's not just Feinstein, but all of them, Pelosi, Boxer, etc. Well, I think that's, you know, uh, maybe not quite giving her her due. Uh, you know, I, we talked to uh, Malia Cohen, uh, who is now the state controller, uh, several months ago while she was running for that job. And, and I asked her about Diane Feinstein, and she said that she remembered as a third grader visiting City Hall, and by chance, Diane Feinstein came out of her office and she was talking to, you know, her class, and she told them, you know, one of you might be mayor someday, and, she, and that stuck with her. So I do think that she, in her own way, mentored young girls in that case, women. She certainly broke the glass ceiling in many ways. But she was also, you know, not a classic feminist. I mean, when she was mayor, she made sure that women in her office wore skirts and dresses. She surrounded herself as mayor with mostly men, uh, you know, who were her advisors and department heads, most of them white. Uh, You know, so I I, I think that, um, yes, her career is nuanced and there should be a full view of her legacy for sure. But I think it's giving her short shrift to say that she, she did nothing either to mentor the next generation or to, uh, you know, do things beyond just sort of feathering her own nest, so to speak. You know, I, I, I guess I, I kind of wonder if, uh, if she had just left, I don't know, at the 20-year mark, you know, maybe there, we'd be thinking more fondly of her. Yeah, I mean, like Barbara Boxer decided, uh, and she's a little younger uh, than Diane Feinstein, a few years younger. You know, she decided in 2016 not to run again for another six-year term. She's now very happily living life down in Southern California. Uh, and, and Diane Feinstein, it was just hard for her to let go. It's still hard for her to let go. People who were very close to her, political allies, went to her and at the very least, encouraged her to announce she wasn't going to run again in 2024. She resisted that. (laughs) She was kind of pressured into it by even Nancy Pelosi, who said, well, I'm for Dianne Feinstein, but if she doesn't run again, I'm for Adam Schiff. Uh, And so the pressure was just too great. And, you know, finally a statement was made. But I think, you know, in talking with some of her very close aides over the years, I think that she just feels like once her Senate career, her, her, her political life is over, that her life is over. 
you know, yeah. that she, and, she, yeah. and it's hard to let go of that power, that influence, uh, being the center of attention, which clearly she isn't anymore, at least not in a way that she probably would like. Um, and so it's unfortunate that her final years will be remembered for her decline uh, in a way that may not have happened, you know, if she had retired and not run again in 2018. Well, I want to uh, encourage people to continue to call in. There is a long list, but we hopefully can get to everybody uh, before the hour is up. Why don't we go next to Elizabeth in San Francisco? Hi, Elizabeth. Hello. Yes. Um, I'm glad that you read about the torture and uh, Diane Feinstein having denounced torture. However, um, she has been a consistent supporter of apartheid Israel, which continues to have the same kind of torture against Palestinian citizens, including children. Also, she is chair of the Armed Forces Committee, was privy to information relating to the um, surveillance of activists within the United States, which is a clear violation of civil rights. Um, And... um, Also, when she was a member of the Appropriations Committee or heading the Appropriations Committee during Katrina, um, she did nothing in her power to stop the uh, major land grab and theft of uh, properties of mostly African-American people in the South during Katrina when they were losing their homes and they had been displaced and the quarter of a million were displaced throughout the country. Um, So I'm, I'm... I'm not happy at all with her position on the war either, um, on any of the wars. she I don't know a war that she doesn't vote in favor of. Um, you know, so, and also the same thing goes for Nancy Pelosi. Uh, any thoughts there, Scott? Yeah, well, you know, I was thinking back to what Jan, the earlier caller, had said and his disappointment or anger at Feinstein for not supporting single payer. Some of that same uh, criticism was was waged at Nancy Pelosi. Uh, You know, as far as Israel goes, uh, she is certainly not alone in the Democratic Party for declining to speak up about some of the many of the things that have happened in Israel, certainly the treatment of Palestinians, um, their you know, abandonment of the two-state solution and many other things. So, you know, these are all valid criticisms and part of her legacy, uh, the good, the bad, and the ugly. Uh, You know, in that same vein, I think there were many people in the party, especially in California, the Democratic Party, who were really unhappy with her support for the death penalty. And, And she changed her mind eventually, but it was like, you know, long after I think many people in the party had decided the death penalty was, you know, not fair and racist and other things um, and didn't didn't work, really, especially here in California. So, you know, she not only did she support it, but she was booed at the state party convention when she was running for governor, turned that into a commercial, said she was for the death penalty, the only Democrat for the death penalty. So I think, you know, you can tick off a number of things that have you know, disappointed, infuriated, angered people in the Democratic Party. And, you know, Elizabeth just mentioned some of those. Yeah, not not just that uh, Feinstein has been a, a stubborn centrist, but really has been a stubborn hawk. Uh, at the same time that the state of California has moved further left and maybe a lot more voters are thinking, hey, wait a second, I, I want you to represent me and or represent us and our opinions, not not the ones that you decided on 30, 50, 70 years ago. Yeah, it's hard. You know, running for the U.S. Senate in California or any statewide office is very expensive. And if you're an incumbent, it's very hard to 
you know, be defeated. And so uh, she really didn't campaign much uh, in the last couple times she was up. She hasn't debated an opponent in, you know, many election cycles. Uh, so, you know, yes, I think uh, the Democratic Party, many voters have definitely moved to her left on things like immigration, even, you know, LGBT rights. Although, she, you know, we can, I will say, and I actually want to say for sure, while she was mayor, one of her finest moments, and, you know, to her great credit, is how she handled the AIDS epidemic. Uh, you know, she had friends in the gay community, but she was also known as being you know, kind of prudish. You know, there was a, a saying uh, from uh, somebody, a civic activist, uh, Jim Haas, who said she doesn't, who's, who was gay, is gay, uh, said uh, that, you know, Diane doesn't care what we do in bed as long as we're in bed by 11. <laughs> uh, you know, she was kind of uh, conservative in that regard. And so I think, uh, you know, there, there, were, there were certainly things where people, many people in California were disappointed, ready for fresh leadership, that more reflected the modern-day California. And that's what this Senate race is going to be about. And, you know, we can talk about that later if you want. But for sure, the people running uh, are all going to be debating a lot of these issues uh, between now and uh, the election. Let's go to the phones again. And Donald in Oakland. Hi, Donald. Hi. Um, listening to Scott, you know, he's, he's giving certainly a nuanced and I think very honest view of uh, Diane Feinstein, but I, I do remember with great anger when she was asked to support Barack Obama's health care initiative, and she just sat on the fence. So I, I called into her office and asked to try to ask her to support it, and the phones were turned off. So uh, I'm sure the message got to uh, certain leaders, especially this, the Central Labor Council, and I think they they put some pressure on her to open up the phones and listen to her constituents. So. I think that has to be part of the record for the senator, along with her achievements, but also, uh, frankly, some of her failures. So I'll just offer that up. Yeah, I think that's all very fair. Uh, you know, I think she I'm sure she did end up I know she voted for the Affordable Care Act. You know, you mentioned Barack Obama. And, you know, one of the roles that she played, Diane Feinstein, is kind of as peacemaker and bridge builder between Barack Obama and Hillary Clinton. You know, they had a very bitter primary fight in 2008. Barack Obama won. A lot of women were very disappointed and angry that uh, Hillary Clinton wasn't the nominee. And Feinstein called them both to her home in Washington, D.C., the very, you know, uh, expensive Calorama neighborhood, sat down, kind of, uh, you know, broke bread, made sure that there was a unity, you know, in going into the, into the November election. Uh, but yeah, she has been someone who has been reluctant to embrace big change on a lot of things, especially where there's a lot of money involved, like healthcare. You know, another thing she did in 2016 that infuriated Barbara Boxer was slipped in a work with Kevin McCarthy on a water bill uh, that some say endangered uh, the Endangered Species Act. Yeah, that we we're going to talk a lot more about this question of uh, where she's been in terms of responsiveness to to her, her constituents, to the media, to all of us. We're looking back on Diane Feinstein's five-decade career in politics with KQED's Scott Schaefer. Join the conversation, 866-733-6786. Email us at forum at KQED. Find us on Twitter, Facebook, or Instagram. We're at KQED Forum. But whatever you do, stay with us. You're listening to Forum, and I'm Rachel Myro.
Support for Forum comes from San Francisco Opera. Set 10 years after a school shooting, the critically acclaimed opera Innocence takes us into a complex emotional journey where our understanding of innocence and guilt is constantly upended. Kaya Sariajo's ethereal score collapses the past into the present as a community of survivors grapple with how to move forward. Don't miss the highly anticipated American premiere of Innocence, June 1st through 21st. Learn more at sfopera.com. We've all got those parts of our house where the internet just won't go. Well, if you had wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you could worry less about dead spots. Because with wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you get fast speeds, reliable connection in every room, and power for all of your devices, even when everyone's online. That's wall-to-wall Wi-Fi only with Xfinity. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. You're listening to Forum. I'm Rachel Myro in for Mina Kim here with KQED's Scott Schaefer, senior editor for our California Politics and Government Desk and co-host of Political Breakdown. Well, Scott, let's waste no time talking about uh, it's not even an elephant in the room. Feinstein's cognitive decline is openly discussed. Her ratings are in the tank. Robert writes, Senator Feinstein should resign today. 40 million Californians should be represented by the most vigorous fighting senator, not the least capable. She's not currently fit for office. When my mom, older and ailing, still wanted to drive, we had to have that very painful discussion asking her to give up the car keys. Yes, it was a blow to her dignity, but the consideration of what was best for the community Unity was the deciding factor. Yeah, and you could say the same thing about Ruth Bader Ginsburg and any number of other people who stayed in office perhaps too long. Uh, You know, she... Obviously, people have lobbied her to do exactly that, to step down. She's declined to do that. Uh, You know, there was a point uh, when there was discussion of her cognitive decline. There were some articles and some national publications and, uh, you know, people talking mostly unnamed sources about her forgetfulness in meetings. And, you know, I've heard things myself from people who who have been in meetings with her. But she just chose to stick around. I mean, she she has been the oldest U.S. senator for about 20 years uh, since Strom Thurmond died. Uh, and so there are others who are not that far behind her, like uh, Charles Grassley from Iowa is just a few months younger than she is. But clearly, uh, she's not on her game anymore. And people have seen that. She didn't go to the State of the Union address uh, last month and, uh, you know, or was it just a few weeks ago? And so clearly she is not capable of doing what she used to do in the job, but she's going to be there. Uh, and unless she dies, you know, she there will be an election to take her, you know, to decide who's going to follow her. You know, there was a point where Gavin Newsom said, well, if she does retire, I'm going to name a black woman to uh, replace her. And a lot of people got very excited at that prospect, uh, including Barbara Lee, who announced today that she is running. Uh, but, you know, ultimately, we defer to folks, uh, They, whether they're on the Supreme Court or in the White House or in the Senate, Congress, House, you know, they just they get to decide for themselves unless the voters decide otherwise. Yeah. And that I guess that choice doesn't happen until 2024, as you said earlier. So you mentioned, you know, Congresswoman Lee. Who else? Adam Schiff, Katie Porter. Yeah, those are the the big three names right now, three members of the California congressional delegation, all Democrats. Um, You know, Barbara Lee is an iconic progressive, the only person in the entire U.S. Congress in 2001 
to vote against authorizing the use of force in Afghanistan just a few days after the 9-11 attacks. Uh, you know, 420 to 1 and 98 to 0 in the U.S. Senate. Barbara Lee was the only one. So she, you know, has been a progressive, uh, you know, uh, icon for many, many years. She's running uh, Adam Schiff, who, of course, has really been prominent uh, in the Trump years in particular, managed the first impeachment of Donald Trump and was on the January 6th committee investigating the attack on the U.S. Capitol. And he's a prolific fundraiser. He's got about $21 million in the bank right now. Um, and Katie Porter, also a force to be reckoned with, a huge following on social media. She's, uh, you know, much younger than the other candidates. I think she's maybe 49 years old, but has a big following uh, as a consumer advocate, somebody who's known to pick up her whiteboard and grill, you know, CEOs over their excesses and their being out of touch with consumers. So it's going to be a very lively race between the three of them. And there may be others There may be, who knows, a Republican who gets into the race, which would scramble things considerably because we have that top two primary in California. So so, we'll so the, the Democrats, uh, the contenders might split the vote, in other words? They could. Uh, absolutely. I mean, that's happened before in other races. I mean, in 2016, it was, you know, Kamala Harris kind of cleared the field. There was not a real uh, credible Republican running. She and Loretta Sanchez were the top two, both Democrats. You know, we'll see. I mean, I think there could be two Democrats if no Republican runs, but just any Republican at all who has any kind of money uh, or name ID is probably going to get about a third of the vote, uh, potentially. So yes, that would scramble things considerably. A listener writes, as Scott noted, San Francisco and California weren't always dark blue, and Feinstein comes from that era. She and others were centrists in California and elsewhere. Polarization has greatly diminished the influence of compromise and centrism. So what is the future for centrism in California over the next 10 years? And I might tweak that question, Scott. Uh, You know, it, it... Finish the sentence with in the U.S. Senate, you know, like like uh, could it be said that what voters are being asked to to choose uh, in the next election for this particular seat is whether they want somebody who's a a centrist, an an institutionalist, someone who tries to work with uh, the chessboard as it is. Uh, versus, say, you know, uh, someone who's more of a firebrand who's, you know, going to whip out a <laughs> an eraser board like Katie Porter. Yeah, exactly. Well, I think, you know, in that uh, latter category, you have Katie Porter and Barbara Lee, um, you know, Adam Schiff, former U.S. prosecutor, uh, more, um, I would say maybe pragmatic. He would call, I talked to him last week, he, he would call himself a progressive. I mean, the difference among these three on issues is not that great. I think it's more stylistic. Uh, you know, there are some, you know, priorities. They may have different priorities, different tactics, ways of going about doing things. But, you know, yeah, it is not. We are not in sort of a golden era for bipartisanship, to say the least. That said, you know, in a 50-50 Senate in the last session, they got a lot of big things done. I don't think heading into a presidential election uh, where Republicans also hope to win back control of the Senate, you're going to see a lot of that. Uh, But we will find out in short order uh, around things like raising the debt ceiling. Let's take another call. Esteban in San Francisco. Hi there, Good afternoon. Uh, I, I, I want to say a positive story. I'm a physician. I'm a full professor at the University of California, San Francisco. And when I was working my way through college, I was the mail delivery boy for City Hall. I delivered mail to Senator Feinstein or Mayor Feinstein at the time every single day. Fast forward 15 years when I was applying for a loan repayment program through the 
National Institutes of Health, the NIH had the calculation incorrect. So I asked uh, Senator Feinstein for help as she she graciously wrote a letter to the federal government, got all my medical school loans paid for. And I was so appreciative to that. And all I had to do in the letter is say, you know, Senator Feinstein, I used to deliver mail to you. I'm a medical student. And at the time, there was a song that was going around in San Francisco, Diane, Diane, I want to be your man. <laughs> I wrote that at the end of the letter, and she laughed. So I'm very, very grateful. Well, thank you for, for sharing help. that story. Yeah. Yeah, you know, I think what Esteban points to is really interesting because so much of what elected officials do is constituent services. Your passport expires. You need some help. You have a problem with Social Security or Medicare or Medicaid, whatever it might be. That's what those offices do. And in, you know, Esteban's case, you know, they he got a good result, which is fantastic. And I think when people say, oh, she should, you know, resign her seat uh, because she's not with it anymore – those offices, to a certain extent, operate by large measure by the, through the staff. Uh, and, of course, the person at the top sets the tone and hires the people and all that. But, you know, constituent services, I think, for is really underappreciated uh, part of public service and, and what voters and, you know, residents, people who live here, uh, get out of having elected officials who represent them. Do you, do you feel California has gotten enough out of Feinstein's office? <laughs> <laughs> You know, I don't know how to answer that. I mean, you know, obviously, you know, she is the senator. And there are a lot of people who just, uh, you know, because of the news reports and just, you know, you can see her uh, having declined, feel that they're getting short shrift. I mean, California is a state of 40 million people. We have a lot of we should have a lot of clout. And in the day, Diane Feinstein had considerable clout, you know, in her hearings that she may have chaired or been a participate in, whether it was, you know, Supreme Court uh, hearings, nomination hearings, confirmation hearings. She's not that person anymore. Uh, And so clearly you're not getting the same kind of representation in California from the senator herself that that we would have, you know, five or 10 years ago. Um, But that said, it doesn't mean there's no one there. I mean, she is still voting. She has good days. She has bad days. And, you know, as I said, she has a whole constituent operation that does a lot of the work for her. You know, a friend of mine said uh, earlier today, uh, we let a lot of dithering males run out the clock again and again, uh, you know, without focusing on their cognitive decline. And, and I'm thinking of that. I'm thinking of that as I read what Cynthia wrote to us. Do you think there would be this many negative comments if she was male? Just wondering, male or female, it's easy to criticize a public figure when you are on the outside, not sitting in the position yourself. You know, I did a story a few days ago, actually, before Feinstein announced that she was going to retire about S.I. Hayakawa. I mentioned him. He was the president of SF State, Republican, became—he was a Democrat, became a Republican, got elected, and he was known for nodding off in meetings, you know, uh, including one at the White House. And they called him Sleepin' Sam, you know, and so and he was pressured out like her, Republicans that year, 80 uh, 82, started jumping into that race. Pete Wilson ended up winning, becoming the U.S. senator. But, you know, the, there were criticisms of him back then. There were certainly criticisms of Strom Thurmond. Uh, so I don't think you they're not all the same. Um, but is it just uh, like sexism? I don't think so. I think there are some real concerns about Senator Feinstein. Uh, and, and, and I'm sure there are others that are maybe, you know, based in sexism. 
You know, I, I keep thinking, you know, California voters have a right to expect active, effective representation. You know, there's no God-given right to die in whatever office you hold. Absolutely. I mean, that is true. But there, are, there aren't term limits either. So they do get to choose. Kim writes, as soon as the news stories reporting her cognitive decline came out, she lost my support. Sure, I voted for her every time, too. She should have resigned two to four years ago when all these stories of her not recalling topics already discussed came out. Other senators should be removed for the same reason. So I I guess Kim is just confirming what we've just been talking about. Uh, Let's see if we can get another call in. Uh, But first, let me just say that you are listening to uh, KQED and Forum. And I'm Rachel Myro uh, filling in for uh, uh, (laughs) filling in for Mina Kim. Uh, We are in the middle of a pledge drive. So please bear that in mind as you consider where to donate your next philanthropic dollar. Uh, Let's go to the phones then. And Mark in Santa Rosa. Hi, Mark. Hi. Hi. Thanks for waiting so long. Yeah, no, I'm actually from San Francisco, but what I wanted to say was Diane Feinstein first, she went into office, she said it was not going to be business as usual. It became business as usual with her. She also, the weapons uh, ban, it wasn't permanent. She had plenty of time to try to make that permanent. So she's a failure there. Stayed too long in office. Where has she been? I don't know anything about her anymore. And I'm glad she's gone. She should have left 10 years ago. And that's all I can say. Thank you, Mark. So, so there again, you know, it, it, it seems like there's a lot of consensus we're, we're uh, focusing in on as, as we bring this hour to a close. I do want to push back yeah. on one thing Mark said, and that is that she is a failure because of the assault weapons ban not being renewed. I mean, she, you know, back then Republicans were threatening a filibuster. The only way she could get to 60 votes uh, was to promise to sunset the bill. I don't think she wanted that. Uh, and by the time it came up for renewal, the, obviously a very different Senate. George W. Bush was president, not Bill Clinton. And so the odds were different. The dynamics were different. So I I think it's really unfair. I mean, she has, if there's been one consistency about Dianne Feinstein throughout her career is her support for gun control. Yeah, yeah. And, you know, yeah, it's worth bearing in mind. If it was easy, it would have been taken care of a long time ago. Well, what do you think she's she's capable of accomplishing in, in these last one to two years? Well, uh, you know, quite honestly, I don't think she's going to she's not the force she was. She's not going to win, you know, sort of through the force of her persuasive powers arguments. Uh, You know, I think she's going to probably just relatively quietly uh, spend the rest of her time there. Uh, She'll show up for meetings when she can. She'll vote when she can. Um, Her office will continue to operate. I don't think we're going to see any, you know, great flourish of activity or accomplishment you know, in the final year plus that she has, um, almost almost two years, really, two, more than a year and a half. So, uh, you know, clearly, you know, her career has peaked, and it peaked some time ago. Um, and she's going to be there until she's there, and the voters will decide who replaces her. I, I guess you could say she's not necessarily ending on a great note, but she has a lot to be proud of. Absolutely. I mean, if you compile a list of the most consequential elected officials in California history in the past 50 to 75 years, she's going to be on that really short list, a list that might include people like Pat Brown, Jerry Brown, Willie Brown, um, 
Earl Warren, you know, governor who became chair, uh, chief justice of the Supreme Court, Nancy Pelosi, you know, it's in, and she, maybe Pete Wilson, you know, she is really one of the most consequential people in part because she was the first. She was the first woman mayor in San Francisco. She pulled the city together. She and Barbara Boxer were the first women to represent California in the U.S. Senate. And you'll never take that away from her. And those are things that history will remember, as well as her taking on some really tough issues, whether it was the assault weapons ban, the CIA torture report, the Desert Protection Act, uh, as well as all the other criticisms, you know, that people have mentioned. Yeah, I I guess uh, even though it's a word that's bandied about far too often, iconic really does describe her. Well, I think, you know, that that video of her announcing the deaths, the murders of George Moscone and Harvey Milk, which was, I mean, every time I hear it, all these years later, it still sends a chill up my spine. You know, she really was incredibly strong and steady in a time when the city was just unraveling. And, uh, you know, I think that that as much as anything will be part of her image uh, going and, and her reputation uh, and her legacy. A listener writes, at this point, the problem with all of the politicians from San Francisco is that they are from a bygone era. Every mayor since 1994 has been enthralled to Willie Brown. Nancy Pelosi and Feinstein are from the old era. And the entire Democratic Party in the state reeks of an old, not all boys club. I, You know, it's interesting. We started this conversation with San Francisco and now... It seems like we're closing with San Francisco again, you know, <laughs> it, it just and, and this question, right? Like like uh, who who are the new leaders, the new icons in the making uh, that will help lead us through a, a troubling time for this city? Well, I think, you know, uh, if you look at Katie Porter, she has generated a lot of enthusiasm. Uh, Pete Aguilar, who is uh, represents the Inland Empire Redlands area, is a rising star in the in the Democratic Party. Um, uh, Robert Garcia, who just got elected to Congress from Long Beach, openly gay, Latino. I think he has a very bright future. He can't be more than 45 years old. Scott Weiner, state senator here in the Bay Area. I mean, Nancy Pelosi at some point is going to not run for re-election. Many people say that he will be the next person, uh, one of the people running for that job. So, you know, there there are rising stars at both the state and the local level. You know, there are so many people who get into politics for the right reasons, including, you know, ones who are very young, uh, but who, f- who feel a calling to public service, whether it's over climate change or guns, whatever the issue might be. So, uh, you know, I think there's always the, the, it's true. We're in a moment of generational change uh, in California. And a lot of these folks, whether it's, you know, boxer, uh, Diane Feinstein, Willie Brown, uh, they have stuck around for a long time. And there's been sort of a pent-up demand. Now, now you're seeing that generation below, Gavin Newsom and all the others who are running for Feinstein's seat, you know, kind of taking over the reins. Uh, and there'll be some after them, you know, uh, not too long who say, hey, it's my turn. It's my turn. What a great conversation this has been. Uh, I, I can't thank you enough for, for joining us this hour and, and helping us look over the entirety uh, of Diane Feinstein's five-decade career in politics. Uh, we've been listening to Scott Schaefer, senior editor for K- KQED's California Politics and Government Desk and co-host of Political Breakdown. Be sure to check out the, the recent uh, segment when he talked with Marisa Lagos. And was it Shira Stein as well about Feinstein? About Feinstein's legacy, yes. And yes. we also, you know, we've had all the candidates running for the Senate. We've had them on Political Breakdown as well, so... Check it out. Check it out. Subscribe. Listen. (laughs) (laughs) You've been listening to Forum. I've been Rachel Myro in for Mina Kim. Thank you so much for joining us today. 
Funds for the production of KQED's Forum are provided by the John S. and James L. Knight Foundation, the Generosity Foundation, the Germanicos Foundation, and the Heising Simons Foundation. Support for Forum comes from San Francisco Opera. Set 10 years after a school shooting, the critically acclaimed opera Innocence takes us into a complex emotional journey where our understanding of innocence and guilt is constantly upended. Kaya Sariajo's ethereal score collapses the past into the present as a community of survivors grapple with how to move forward. Don't miss the highly anticipated American premiere of Innocence, June 1st through 21st. Learn more at sfopera.com. We've all got those parts of our house where the internet just won't go. Well, if you had wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you could worry less about dead spots. Because with wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you get fast speeds, reliable connection in every room, and power for all of your devices, even when everyone's online. That's wall-to-wall Wi-Fi only with Xfinity. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. All over the country, we need to improve reading in Wisconsin. Schools are changing the way they teach reading. I'm calling for a renewed focus on literacy. We have gotten this wrong in New York and all across the nation. And it's happening because of a podcast. I think your podcast has changed my life. And I'm going to share this podcast with everyone I meet. Sold a Story investigates how teaching kids to read went wrong. New episodes of Sold a Story are available now.